Open up to Revelation chapter 11. A very difficult passage. Maybe the most difficult that I've dealt with. Revelation chapter 11. I'm still getting just a little feedback. For me. It's probably okay for the audience, but I'm still getting it. Okay, Revelation chapter 11. Now last week, John, who writes the Revelation, is given two instructions. First of all, he's told to eat a scroll. There's a little scroll that is the that an angel is holding in his hand, and John is told to take that scroll and eat it, which means digest its content. It has the Word of God on it. He's to digest it, chew it up, think about it, turn it over in his mind, understand it, comprehend it, because he is then going to be able to deliver this. And that's the second instruction. He's told to prophesy to the to the people, uh, possibly what's in the scroll. We're not sure. But he is to speak to the nations, the kings, people, different tongues, uh, all different people. And then today he's given a third instruction. And we see that in chapter 11 and verse 1. He said, Then I was given a reed, like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise! Measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. So, here is the third instruction. Now, let's look at uh, what he's told. First of all, he is given an instrument. And notice what that instrument is in verse 1. It's called a reed. He was given a reed, and it says it's like a measuring rod. Okay. Now, reeds grew in the Jordan Valley. You know what a reed is. It's just a, a plant that grows. And these were uh, used in Bible times by surveyors to measure the boundaries of property. Now, when we bought our house, guess what we had to do? Had to have a surveyor come out. Measure our boundaries to determine what was ours and what was the neighbor's? And these reeds were cut to six cubits. Or, yes, this, these reeds were six cubits that the surveyors used. Now, what's a cubit? Cubit is from the tip of your middle finger to your elbow. It's uh, usually considered about 18 inches. So, six cubits would be about nine feet. Maybe ten feet. So that's what John is given in his vision. Now remember, this is all symbolic. He literally is given a reed in his vision. But the reed represents something. Okay? So that's the instrument that he's given. It's very symbolic. Now look at the instructions. The angel says in the end of verse 11, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Now, what temple? We've got a problem here, don't we? You say, well, why is there a problem? It says there's no temple existing at this time. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. John's writing in 95. There's no temple. Hadn't been a temple around for 25 years. So what temple is he to measure? Well, see, this has led some commentators to say, well, if he's not to measure that temple, it's not around. Maybe he's to measure a future temple. An end time temple. And, uh, well, guess what? That wouldn't make any sense to John's readers. 
Because when John says temple, guess what they're thinking of? The temple that used to sit. That's what they're thinking of. John certainly can't measure that temple. It's gone. And even if it were standing, some people say, well, John was written prior to 70 AD. People say that. I would say half the commentators say that it was written 70. Temple's still standing. Well, there's still a problem, isn't it? John's not in Jerusalem. Where's he? He's on the Isle of Exile and on the Isle of Patmos. You know where that is? Far from Jerusalem. He couldn't measure that temple if he wanted to. Okay. So what we have here is that we have to say, well, what in the world would this temple represent to John's people? Well, one of the things, by 95 AD, you know what was called the temple? The church. The church is called what? The temple of God. Don't you know that you are the temple of God? The church is the temple of God? Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 3. He also says it in 1 Corinthians 6 that we are the temple of God. So I think that it's a possibility that he is basically being told to measure the temple, the church. Find out what are the boundaries of the church. Who's in the church? Who's outside the church? Who's saved? Who's not saved? You say, come on. You don't believe that, do you? Well, look what it says in verse 11. Or verse 1. Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and what? Oh, how do you measure people? You're putting them on a scale and putting the thing here, say six foot one? How do you measure people? See, take a measure of the people. Take a measure of the temple of God. Take a measure of the church. Who measures up? Who's a member of the church? Who doesn't measure up? That would make sense to John's audience. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to find out what it would mean to John's audience. Now, some people say, well, Steve, why are you doing all this? Why are you talking? Why are you trying to get it in the context of this first century? Well, you've already heard it the other way. A thousand times. So if I told you that way, guess what? I'd just be rehashing over all that. Way. So I'm trying to give you a, an interpretation of the text that would make sense to John's original audience. Who's John writing to? Seven churches in Asia Minor, somewhere around 95. So I'm just trying to figure out that. And we're putting it in the historical context, and then we're making the application for ourselves. So, he says, find out who measures up. Look what he says in verse 2. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. There are people who are outside the bounds of that temple. Uh, when he says the court outside, the people would immediately think of the court of the Gentiles. And you know, in the original temple, what was happening in the court of the Gentiles? Anybody know? That's where they were selling all those sacrifices. That's where Jesus went and overturned the money table, tables, and he said, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. There isn't any believers that are operating here. And I think that what he's saying is, look, there are Gentiles that are outside the realm of God's people. And don't include them in that measurement. They're outside the bounds. These are people who are loyal to the emperor, not loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. These are people who say Caesar's Lord, not Christ the Lord. Does that make sense? Now once you see that, everything starts falling into place. Now watch what he said. Why don't you measure those 
people that are outside. Look in the middle of verse 11, oh, verse 2. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot 42 months. These are people who are against God's people. Now, when he says, tread the holy city 42 months, what's he talking about there? When he says that, and his readers read it, they have to understand it. When you read it, don't put the Gentiles in here who have tread the city for 42 months. What's he talking about? Well, the temple area and the city of Jerusalem had been tread under by Gentiles for 42 months. On two occasions. One under Antiochus Epiphanes. Remember him? Evil man who tried to have the Jews sacrifice a pig on the altar of the temple. Remember that? For 42 months, three and a half years, he controlled the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem, the holy city, was tread underfoot by Gentiles. Happened the second time. You know when that happened? When the temple was destroyed in 78 days. You know, the temple was destroyed in 78 days. You know why it was destroyed? Does anybody know the history of that? Do you know that there was a Jewish war? It's called the Jewish War. Josephus wrote a whole book called the Jewish War. It's all about it. I had to read a lot of that book. And the Jewish War lasted from 66 A.D. to 70 A.D. Three and a half years. And the Gentiles tread the holy city of Jerusalem underfoot. They are not to be included. Now notice here, he talks this. They will tread the holy city. You see the future tense there? Hey, it's going to continue to happen. In fact, since 70 A.D., the city of Jerusalem, from 70 A.D. all the way up to the Six-Day War in 1967, the city of Jerusalem has been tread underfoot by Gentiles. It was only with the Six-Day War that the Jews actually got the holy city back, at least portions of it. So this, I think, is just talking about the church measures up as the people of God. Those outside the church who are against the people of God do not measure up as God's people. They are against God's people. And then he goes on and he says in verse 3, And I will give power, God says, the angel says this through John, I will give power to my two witnesses, that they may prophesy one thousand 260 days clothed in sackcloth. That's the exact same time. That's, four and a, that's three and a half years. Only it's put in days. Kinds of days. So, contemporary or contemporaneously with the Gentiles who are against God's people, God will have his own witnesses. Now, we have a problem here, don't we? What do we have to do when we look at verse 3? Have to determine who the witnesses are. What in the world? Who are the two witnesses? What do they do? Well, let's look at what they do in verse 3. They do what? Prophesy. While the, while the heathen are against the people of God, God has his witness. And they are prophesying during that period of time. What message are they preaching? Can you find that in verse 3? We can find out by the way they're dressed. How are they dressed? Oh, that's the kind of dress that a prophet puts on when he preaches repentance and judgment. See, so you sort of have to look between the lines, but when you see it, it becomes very clear. 
These are prophets who are calling the nations, the people, to repent or face God's judgment. In the context of the first century, this would be God's witnesses in the first century, going into the early second century, calling those in the Roman Empire who stand against God's people to repent or face the judgment. Now, who are these witnesses? Now, by the way, we're always dealing with symbolic language, right? He probably sees two witnesses, two people, but guess what? They may not literally be two people. In the vision, they're two people, but guess what? They're symbolic, and therefore they what? They represent something. So who are these two witnesses? Who do they represent? Do we have any clues here? Well, look what he says in verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now, we do have one clue there in verse 4. What's the clue? They're called what? Olive trees, and I haven't seen that yet in the book of Revelation. What else are they called? Oh, now what do you know? What do you know? What have you seen about the word lampstand? Have you ever seen that before in the book of Revelation? Okay, what are they, you know? What are the lampstands? No? Churches. Churches. I saw seven lampstands, and he calls them the churches. In Revelation chapter, chapter 2. Seven lampstands represent the seven churches of Asia Minor. And he lists those seven churches. How many of the lampstands does he see here? So, if you were just basing it on the text, not basing it on your theology, not basing it on some screwball prophecy teacher, you were just reading this and you said, lampstands, oh, I think I saw lampstands. Let me see what it says there. Oh, yeah, I see back in chapter 7, seven lampstands. Oh, well, there's the churches. He says they're the churches. In fact, that's what he says. Doesn't he say that? Yeah, he says that. Look at what, Let me read it to you, 120. I'll just read it to you. The seven stars are the seven angels of the churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven stars. You would have said to yourself, lampstands equal what? Churches. But how many? Two. Not all seven, but two. So, and what are they? Witnesses. Have we seen the term witnesses before in the book of Revelation? Well, we have. We saw in chapter 1 and verse 5 that Jesus is called the faithful and true witness. So these witnesses are following the lead of their Lord. He is a true witness, and guess what they are? They are a true witness. So that's the context. These are faithful believers... Not all of them. Some of them. Maybe two churches. We don't know for sure. But we're just saying, we're making a conjecture at this point. In the first and second century, who are faithful witnesses standing before the God of the earth, which simply means the God who created the earth. They are his representatives. They are sent out as his ambassadors. Now, look at verse 4. Well, I just read verse 4, didn't I? Now, notice that they are called olive trees and lampstands. Now, there is one passage in the Bible where those two terms, olive trees and lampstands, are found in the same passage in the Old Testament. And if you have a cross-reference, you might see it. It's Zechariah chapter 4. Now, what in the world is Zechariah chapter 4? We'll turn there. 
Now, where is Zechariah? Right before Malachi. Next to the last book in the Old Testament. When you find it, go to Zechariah chapter 4. And you're going to see these two terms, olive trees and lampstands. Olive trees and lampstands. And look at verse 1. Zechariah 4 and verse 1. Now the angel who talked to me came back and he wakened me as a man is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on the top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps, seven-pronged menorah with little bowls on the different prongs. With seven pipes and with seven lamps. Seven pipes to the seven lamps. Now look at verse 3. Two olive trees are by it. One at the right of the bowl and the other is at the left of the lampstand. So I answered and I spoke to the angel who was with me. And I said, what are these, my lord? Then the angel talked to me and answered me and said, Don't you know what these are? <laughs> That's a great question, isn't it? Tell if I said, Don't you know what these are? What would you answer them? <laughs> so uh, he said, No, my Lord. And so he answered and he said to me, Well, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. If you want to know, let me give you what God has to say about it. So he says, speaks to Zerubbabel, who's the leader. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's one of those famous verses that you quote all the time. That's where it's located. Right here. And these two witnesses in Revelation are going to go out. And guess what? They're not going to go out by might. And they're not going to go out by their own strength. But they're going to go out in the power of the Lord. Speaking forth the word. And he shall bring forth the capstone and the shouts of grace. Grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying... The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. The hand shall also finish it. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? Another famous verse that you've heard quoted many times. Who's despised the day of small things? And these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. What's the plumb line? That's something a surveyor uses or something like that. See how all this is sort of related? Guess what they are? The eyes of the Lord. <laughs> See, uh, in Revelation, John is told to use the measuring rod to determine the boundaries of who is God's people and who is not God's people. It's really God who's making the decision. Because they're speaking on behalf of God. It's God who's eyeing them up would scan to and fro through the whole earth. Then I answered and I said to him, what are these two olive trees? Hey, that's important. That's in Revelation. At the right of the lampstand and to its left. And I further answered and said to him, what are these two olive branches that dip in the receptacles of the two golden pipes, which are the two golden, from which uh, the two uh, golden oil drains? And then he answered and said, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. He said, these are the two anointed ones 
to stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Boy, that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Now look back at Revelation. Look back at Revelation. And you see how it says this in verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now in Zechariah, we are told that the two witnesses, the olive trees and the lampstands being the same two people, are Zechariah. If you kept on reading, you discover it was Zechariah, who's the ruler of God's people, and Joshua, not the one who led them into the promised land, another Joshua, Joshua the high priest. There's the ruler and the priest, and they are the two witnesses. Now, when you see that, that's very interesting. So if John were writing to his churches, and they heard about two witnesses and olive trees and lampstands, their minds would go back to what? Zechariah 4, and they would say the two witnesses are, at least back there they were, Zechariah, the ruler, and Joshua, the high priest. Or these, you think that's John? You think Zechariah and Joshua are coming back and be resurrected here and reincarnated again? Obviously, it's not going to be them, is it? But that's what would go through the minds of the early church. They would say, oh, these two witnesses are like Zechariah and Joshua. They represent God, they speak for God. And look what it says in verse 5. And anyone who wants to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in like manner. Now, whoever these witnesses are, it says when someone tries to stop them, fire comes out of their mouth. Literally? Are they human dragons? No. Well, what does that mean? It represents something. What would it mean? Fire comes out of the mouth. Well, in the Old Testament, the prophets had fire in their bones and fire in their mouth. And when they spoke, and it says fire came out of their mouth, it means they spoke judgment upon a nation. And so that's what you have here, is that these guys, when they speak and the people come against them, uh, they speak judgment. And God honors that, and he judges those people. Uh, whom they speak against. So it's not literal fire, but they're speaking judgment. So what we have is they are being supernaturally protected. Anyone tries to get a hold of them, judgment comes out of the mouth, God takes care of that person. So they're supernaturally protected. But they're also supernaturally endowed. They're supernaturally successful because look in verse 6. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now, when John's readers see this verse, read this verse, they think, well, who prayed and shut up heaven for three and a half years? Elijah. And who brought plagues? Moses. So how many times have you heard that the two witnesses are <laughs> Elijah and Moses? Well, that would be a good one, wouldn't it? What are they going to do? Be resurrected to come back from heaven where they are? It's no more Elijah. These two witnesses are no more Elijah and Moses than they are Zechariah and Joshua. 
But this is what is to be brought to the people's mind. They are going to go in the power of Elijah and Moses. And they're going to preach like Zechariah and Joshua. But it's all symbolic. Remember when Jesus' disciples said to Jesus, Is John the Baptist Elijah? Remember when they asked him that? And you remember what Jesus said? If you believe it, he is. <laughs> now, what's, how's that for an answer? Now, he certainly wasn't literally Elijah, was he? No, but what did he do? He ministered like Elijah. He preached judgment upon the people. Well, that's what these two witnesses are. But I don't think that they're two individuals. I think that the, the two lampstands, which in John has already identified back in chapter 1 in the last verse as churches. So I think these are his people, maybe people out of those churches, maybe a couple people out of those two churches. I don't know. But I think it's happening in John's day, John's day, not way in the future. You know, that wouldn't have made sense to John's audience. This is all going to be happening in John's day. And God's going to protect them. So what he goes on to say is, verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. Now, when they finish their testimony, when they complete their mission of witnessing, doing what God has for them to do, then the beast who rises out of the abyss. Now, we know who the beast is. The beast is mentioned in Revelation 12, 17, 18, 13. Uh, this beast would be, who would the beast be? <coughs> Satan. Satan would definitely be the, one the, would be the power behind the throne of Rome. So this would probably be the emperor and his cohorts and Satan behind him and all that. And they are going to, when God's finished with those two witnesses, whether that's the church or individuals, they are going to be put to death. They're going to be put to death. But up until the time that their mission is completed, they are supernaturally protected. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. What great city? The one which is spiritually called Sodom and Gomorrah. Where also our Lord was crucified. So, they are going to be lying in a city uh, which is called a great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Gomorrah. This city is going to have the morals of Sodom and it's going to be as oppressive as Egypt was. And what is that city? We say it is what? Jerusalem, because it says where our Lord was crucified at the end of verse 8. You see that? Now, if it's Jerusalem, and let me tell you this, the commentators are divided 100% right down the middle. 50 on one side, 50 on the other side. Some say it's Jerusalem because of the last phrase in verse 8, where our Lord was crucified. And where was Jesus crucified? In Jerusalem. Actually, he was crucified where? outside of but you know they say Jerusalem okay so that's what if that's Jerusalem that he's talking about 
then Jerusalem has become like Sodom and like Egypt. It's become morally degrading and it's become oppressive. Okay. Uh, but here's a question. Why would... So let me just tell you the other side of the story. The other commentators say this is actually Rome. This is the capital city of Rome where Caesar's <laughs> throne is. And that certainly is like Sodom. Perverted. It's certainly like Egypt. Oppressive. That's where the power flows down from. And it was Rome that crucified Jesus was responsible. So although Jesus literally was crucified in Jerusalem, he was, in a sense, crucified in Rome. Because it was Rome that gives the orders. So you have the commentators on both sides. Okay. Now, here's the question. If it's Jerusalem, we have a problem. Because it says that these two witnesses are killed and their bodies are put on display in Jerusalem. At the time of this writing, 95 AD, the Jews had been scattered in Jerusalem. The great Jewish war had been, is now over. The temple has been destroyed and where are all the Jews? Scattered. So that lends itself to saying, you know, we can't say for sure if it's Jerusalem or simply meaning Rome, representing the Roman Empire, but uh, I'm going to come down with the Roman Empire. <laughs> I could be wrong on this. I'm, I'm just not sure. Because it's the empire who has killed Christ, the Roman Empire and, and the Roman system that has put Christ to death. Now, if he's not talking about two literal people, they're symbolic of something. If these two witnesses are symbolic of the church, uh, it simply means that when their mission is over, <coughs> these two churches' mission is over, uh, Rome's going to come against them and they'll be successful. And wherever they have gone to witness in the Roman Empire, they're just going to be left there and die. And I'm going to give them a decent burial. So that's, that's a possibility. That's a very hard thing to try to determine all this. So this is why those people who can give you a little chart say, here's how it's going to work. I wouldn't trust them with a ten foot pole. I wouldn't trust them with a reed. Yeah? Okay, so, anyway. Uh, now, look what happens. It says, verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth, see, that's why I think it's beyond just a little city, probably represents Rome and the Roman Empire, will rejoice over that martyrdom of those believers. Make merry, send gifts one to another, because these two prophets, prophetic voices, tormented those who dwell on the what? Earth. So this is why we think maybe the witnesses have gone out and it's beyond just a, a localized situation. And there's sort of like a satanic celebration over the fact that the church has been persecuted. Jesus said, you know, uh, they're going to rejoice when they kill me. He says that in John chapter 16. Same writer, John 16, 20. He says, they, they will rejoice when they kill me. And guess what? They'll rejoice when they kill me. So just expect these kinds of things. And then after three and a half days, it says, verse 11, the breath of God will enter them, enters them, and they stood on their feet. So they're left in the streets just to decay, and then three and a half days later, they stood on their feet. What in the world does that mean? It means a resurrection of some sort. 
Because we've already seen this statement. Remember John heard in his vision, a lion of the tribe of Judah. And I turned and I saw, what? A lamb. Guess what the lamb was doing? Standing. The one who had been crucified was now standing again. He had been resurrected. And so here is a picture of some sort of bringing people back to life. And it says, great fear fell upon those who saw it at the end of verse 11. Now we have a very interesting little tidbit here, which is, I think, something that you'll really be interested in. To, to allow, allow somebody to die and just allow, lay them, allow them to lay on the street in ancient times, especially among Jewish people, was considered the ultimate act of shame. If you wanted to dishonor a person who died and you wanted to dishonor their family, you just left them out on the street. Because the Jews put such great emphasis on burial. And the Jews uh, believed that after a person was buried, you put them in a, in a family tomb. In a tomb. And that body stayed there for one year. That period of one year was called the pains of death. And that's when the skin, you know, everything on the bones just decayed and fell off. And at the end of the year, all that was left of that dead body in the tomb were the bones. They would go back at the end of the year, which was the end of the year morning, and they would collect the bones of their dead relative, and they would put them in a little box called an ossuary, a bone box. And then they would take that bone box and they would put it in a different tomb. Because the Jews believed that those bones were absolutely essential. Because one day God was going to raise the body from the dead and it needed a bone or a skeletal structure upon which to form a new body around it. So the Jews put a great emphasis on taking care of burial and the bones and all these kinds of things. And just to leave those dead bodies in the street would have been abhorrent to Jewish people. And that's what they do. It's, a, it's a dishonor to the people of God. But he says, three and a half days later they stood on their feet. And verse 12 says, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And by the way, in verse 11, I just noticed it says, God, three and a half days, the breath of God entered them. Do you see that? The breath of God entered them? It's God that raises them from the dead. Remember Ezekiel and the bones? Ezekiel's dead bones? What happens? There are all these dead bones. And what does Ezekiel see God do? God says to Ezekiel, breathe on them. And what happened to the bones? Bones came back to life. There was a resurrection. Israel was being resurrected. The picture of God's people being resurrected. You remember what Jesus did in John 21? Jesus dies. He's resurrected. All the guys are out there fishing. Jesus is on the shore. They look up. Who's that? Jesus. Ah, he's dead. Hey, look. I think I see him. Jesus was cooking fish. Remember that? He had a fish fry. Fish breakfast. Jesus was fixing breakfast. They all come to Jesus, and they see that he's alive. And guess what he does? He goes. He breathes on them. He says, receive ye the Holy Spirit. 
And with that, guess what? The people of God come to life. He's forming a new nation, a new people of God. Israel's rejected him, and guess what he's doing? He's taking a remnant of Jews who are believers, and he's breathing new life into them. And that's what you see here. You see these people who represent God's people, he's sort of breathing new life into them. And they rise up. We don't know when this is going to happen. This might happen at the end of the age. But, uh, it all seems to be happening within a short period of time. And that same hour, it says in verse, uh, in verse 12, it says, And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come on up here. And they ascended into heaven in a cloud. And their enemies saw them. Just as Jesus ascended on a cloud, so the believers descend on the cloud. Just as Jesus was a faithful witness, they are a faithful witness. Just as Jesus was put to death, they are put to death. Just as Jesus ascended, just as Jesus was resurrected, they're resurrected. Just as Jesus ascended on the cloud, they ascended on the cloud. What's he saying here? Is this all happening literally? We don't know. We know this is what's happening in his vision. But it all represents something. I think he's seeing, you know, God's people, God bringing the people back to life or something of that nature. It's hard to really determine that. It says in that same hour when all that was happening, there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. Hey, we've just seen an earthquake, haven't we? We've seen what the destruction of an earthquake can do. Here's an earthquake. Is this the final judgment? No. Guess how many people died right there? How much of the of the city is destroyed? A tenth. What city? Well, we don't know what city. It doesn't say what city. Is it the holy city? Is it Jerusalem? Is it Rome? We don't know. But this isn't the final judgment, because in the final judgment, guess what happened? Everything that can be shaken will be shaken. The whole world reels. But here's a localized earthquake where one-tenth of a city is destroyed. This probably happened sometime in John's lifetime where God judged one of the Roman cities, Roman people, kills destroys one-tenth of the city. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. Well, how bad is that, 7,000? What does that mean? Literally 7,000? Wasn't 7,001? Wasn't 6,999? How many? Was it 7,000? What do you think? 7,000 people. What does that mean? Literally, well, that's literally, you see 7,000 in your dream, but guess what? It's symbols. It means something. What does that mean? Elijah says, Lord, Lord, I'm the only one that's been faithful to you. And God said, ah, shut up. I got 7,000 others who haven't bowed their knee. <laughs> what does that mean, 7,000 others? That means, hey, you're not the only one. <laughs> there's others. There's another, there's a remnant that's been faithful. Well, this is sort of the reverse of that. How many are going to die? Believe me. It's going to be a good amount of people. And it's, uh, you know, but guess what? It's not the final judgment, is it? Is this the final judgment when the Lord returns? Only 7,000? Only a tenth of the city? No. So therefore, what kind of a judgment must it be? If it's not the final judgment, when did it take place? Probably took place back sometime in John's day. See, there are already two churches that are being persecuted. The church at Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia are already experiencing persecution. Maybe this is the two witnesses that he's talking about. And he's saying, just be faithful. Yeah, they'll put you to death, but guess what? God will raise you from the dead. You'll be exalted just like Jesus is. Don't worry about it. Rome will get its due. Just preach the judgment. Fire will fall on them. They're going to get it. Earthquake? Well, whatever it is, it's going to be some sort of judgment. It's going to affect 
a group of people. Going to be enough to cause the fear of God to come to the rest. And then look what he says in verse 14. The second one of the past. Behold, the third woe is coming quick. Quickly, soon. <laughs> Alright, we're only two-thirds of the way through this scenario. There's another one coming right on top of this. Now, it's very interesting. He never tells us again about the third woe. That third woe will never be mentioned. But we do know this. <coughs> A fifth trumpet has sounded. And the first woe is seen. The sixth trumpet is sounded. And the second woe is seen. Maybe the third woe comes when the seventh trumpet sounds. We don't know. He's not going to tell us. He's just going to skip that. Going to let you hang. He says, guess what? You ain't seen nothing yet, seven churches. It's just starting. Two things are going to happen. But guess what? There's going to be another one coming right after. So just get ready. Prepare yourself. He that overcomes, that's the one that will be given over eternal life. He that overcomes, that's the one that will sit with me on the throne. Next week we'll pick up at verse 15 and we see the seventh trumpet sound. We'll see what happens with that. Lord, we thank you that it's uh, your word is so mystifying at times. We try to figure it out. Lord, we oftentimes in situations like this with this prophetic and apocalyptic and cosmic type of language, it's so difficult for us uh, to get the details, but Lord, we got the big picture. We got the picture that you were warning a church, a group of churches, to be faithful no matter what, to be witnesses no matter what, that their mission wouldn't be finished, they wouldn't be persecuted until the mission was finished, they wouldn't be killed until the mission was finished, and then when you were finished with them, yes, they may face death, but you would vindicate them, you would show them to be true and faithful servants because you would resurrect them. Oh Lord, help us to take that same message to heart. Help us to realize that we too are called to be witnesses. Jesus told us that we're to go out and be witnesses in Judea, Samaria, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Lord, this message for them is a message for us until the end times. So Lord, help us to take it to heart and apply it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.